trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Uh, we have some top shelf wrong think in which we'll be reveling today. And I got to start out with something that's probably the best belly laugh I've had in, in a while. I don't know if you uh, caught any of the news yesterday. Um, I'm not expecting you to hang on the news, but it was a pretty big deal that uh, Hunter Biden was uh, showing up to to hear. Uh, I guess he was facing contempt of Congress charges because uh, he hadn't showed up to testify. So he showed up yesterday for this hearing in Congress. And, uh, it, you know, it was a good example. I mean, the guy shows up with a Secret Service detail, right? He's the president's son. And, uh, you know, he's got his attorney sitting there with him. And uh, it's just, it's so funny. He storms out of the room at one point. I think it was Marjorie Taylor Greene started to ask questions about his banking. She actually held up. You know, a big poster with the, with banking records on them. And at that point, Hunter just blitzed. Nope, you know, they're, they're threatening to hold him in contempt, but he just gets up and walks out. Okay, that wasn't the funny part. That was that was the part of basically uh, the, the uniparty, the, the blob, as James Howard Kunstler would refer to it, of Washington, D.C., essentially flipping everybody in America the middle finger and saying, look, what are you going to do about it, huh? Huh, cupcake? You're going to do something? No, the funny part was as Hunter and his entourage were walking through the halls of Congress and uh, a voice is heard a couple of times asking him a question. And the, the, the two questions that came through loud and clear uh, were, uh, Hunter, what type of crack do you prefer? Are you on crack today? That one actually earned a dirty look from Hunter Biden. And and I know it's, it's kind of funny, right? Oh, so somebody was heckling him. What's so funny about that? I'll tell you, this is, this is the part that just made me smile. The person who was trolling him was none other than Eric Parker. Now, most people don't know who Eric Parker is. However, if you were to Google Bunkerville 2014 standoff, if you just put those words in, Bunkerville standoff, put that in there, and, and click on images, I promise you one of the most common images you're going to find is a picture of a young man, a bearded young man in sunglasses, lying on his belly with his rifle pointed through the jersey barrier toward federal agents who were pointing their guns at innocent people, most of whom were unarmed, who were approaching the uh, enclosure of of the uh, Bureau of Land Management compound of that uh, cattle rustling operation when they came to take the Bundy's cattle from them. That Eric Parker... The guy who people said, oh, my gosh, that's the that's the poster boy for the militia. You know, he'll never see the light of day again. Well, guess what? He he went through not one, but two trials and was actually on his way to a third. The jury at that point was not going to convict him. Right. So there were two mistrials. And the the federal government was going to throw everything at him. Right. This this guy, why he did the unthinkable. I mean, even people who are pretty much not on the side of the federal government or the BLM were like, oh, it's, it's sad, but you know, that poor kid's going to be buried under the jail by the time this is done. Instead, they came to Eric and they offered him a plea deal. 
And I believe the the charge, and he accepted it. He was wise. He's, instead of waiting for another trial, he said, sure, I'll take your, your deal. When they told him it would be a misdemeanor charge of interfering with a government officer in the discharge of his duties. You know, he'd been sitting in jail for the better part of two years by this point. But with it being a misdemeanor offense, guess what? Eric walked away, a free man. He still votes. He's run for office, actually, here in Idaho a couple of times now. Uh, still owns guns. You know, he's, he's a free man. And I'm, I, I want you to understand, I'm not just saying, boy, we should all go out there and be, you know, you know pointing our guns at, at uh, rogue federal agents. But I heard Eric give uh, an interview over the telephone when he was in jail about why he was at Bundy Ranch in the first place. And I think I should probably go ahead and point this out. Since that time, Eric has, has had a pretty significant falling out with Ammon Bundy. So to say he's just a Bundy fanboy, that's not true. But the reason he went, and I heard him describe this in his own words, was that his conscience was pricked when he heard what was happening to this family of ranchers in southern Nevada. Enough so that he was like, I can't let that happen to them. Not... Well, I have the ability to help stand with them and uh, and prevent an injustice, another Ruby Ridge or another Waco from taking place, which it turns out that's exactly what uh, Special Agent Dan Love from the Bureau of Land Management was trying to precipitate, some kind of violent response that would uh, somehow justify him unleashing his 200-man militarized task force on the Bundys. So Eric's Eric is a hero to me. And there's another, I'll, I'll share one more experience with you that to me illustrates. This is a guy who not only is in tune with his conscience, he takes his freedom seriously, but he doesn't take himself too seriously. And this is what I really respect about him. Um, back in 2018, in Iron County, Utah, that's down in Southern Utah, they were having their Lincoln Day Banquet. The Republican Party, local GOP, was doing their Republican Day Banquet. And thanks to, to the hard work and uh, the, the brilliance of a young man by the name of Brad Green, they brought Ron Paul in as the keynote speaker. That's a pretty big headliner. To, they flew him out to Utah. He, uh, he came and spoke. And, uh, and even Mitt Romney showed up. Now, keep in mind, this is prior to the 2020 election, so Mitt was still, you know, kind of testing the waters about to maybe this is before he became, you know, the, the senator uh, replacing Orrin Hatch. So Eric asked Mitt Romney, hey, uh, could I have my picture taken with you? And Mitt, of course, ever the, you know, politician, well, of course, come stand here. He's smiling. And, and Eric, you know, is, is holding a little notebook in his hand. And just as they went to snap the photo, he flips the notebook up and it says swamp rat with an arrow pointing right towards Mitt. <laughs> and I know it's how childish, how could he be so disrespectful? I'm sorry, but it was, it was probably the funniest thing I've seen in a long time. I didn't think that could be topped. Until yesterday when I heard Eric Parker asking Hunter Biden, hey, uh, what kind of crack do you prefer? Are you on crack today? <laughs> ah, let me tell you why, why this resonates with me. Okay, yes, I'm a prankster at heart, but what I love is the fact that Eric Parker faced down the might of the United States government at its most hostile. It threw everything it had at him, and Eric came out on the other side, still standing. 
but not content to just, you know, be like, well, I'm going to go lick my wounds and go hide somewhere so that I never, ever, you know, attract their attention again. He has made it a point to be a very active force for freedom, including being an active pain in the you-know-what to all those high and mighty bureaucrats. I can't, I can only imagine some of the conversations that were taking place behind closed doors in Washington, D.C. last night. What are we going to do about this guy? What can we do about him? By the way, Eric is in, uh, he's in Washington right now as part of an effort to explore and uh, and really investigate the weaponization of the U.S. government, and particularly U.S. government agencies, against American citizens, using labels like domestic terrorism and that sort of stuff. We've seen a lot of this, especially since uh, January 6th, but it started long before that. And what happened at Bunkerville, Nevada, I, by the way, I heard a term yesterday for the first time, which I really think um, applies better. Instead of more, uh, instead of a standoff, which is how it was described, it was more of a stand down. But it was uh, definitely one of the most significant acts of armed resistance in the United States, probably since the war between the states. Crazy stuff. The federal government was not happy, but. Uh, when it came out, what they had done to instigate that incident in the first place. The judge dismissed the case with prejudice, meaning it can't be brought back. That was just, uh, what was it, six years ago. I was there in the courtroom when she did it. It was a powerful, powerful day. And I understand there there are still entities and individuals in Washington, D.C., who I'm sure would like to get some kind of, of revenge for that. But in the meantime, I will sleep better at night occasionally giggling as I fall asleep, thinking about uh, Eric Parker. <laughs> uh, this this is a guy who knows how to stand up when it's time to stand up, but also knows how to make the, uh, the very comfortable and oh-so-powerful very uncomfortable. And they need to be uncomfortable. They need to be afflicted, lest they get the impression that they really are, you know, all that and a bag of chips. So kudos to Eric Parker. I'm sorry for uh, for taking this this bit of a detour, but it was too good not to share that he was trolling Hunter Biden and I think got the best reaction out of Hunter, of everybody. And Hunter had some people going after him in that uh, hearing yesterday. Nancy Mace, Marjorie Taylor Greene. If I had to bet on the Republicans or on Eric Parker, you know, to move the needle in the direction of freedom, I would definitely put my money on Eric. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let me take a moment here to thank the sponsors who make this program possible. Especially, I would like to thank Ironsight Brewing Company. That's ironsightbc.com. This is a subscription coffee service. If you're a person who really likes your coffee, I would encourage you to check them out. Not only do they have a lot of different blends that you can choose from, they've got some great swag, but best of all, they have very high-quality coffee from the roaster to your cup in less than 72 hours. And it's, it's a reasonable subscription price. I mean, you'd be shocked at, uh, at how reasonable it is to enjoy that kind of quality. 
You can find them in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com or just go to ironsightbc.com. So uh, sharing the, the, the Eric Parker story with you, it, it brings to mind a question that I think every one of us needs to ask ourselves as we live in historically significant times, right? Do you, you get that impression? We're not just living through average times where we can just coast along or let the current carry us where it may. These are serious times. And we have very serious choices to make. But one of the biggest questions that we have to be willing to ask ourselves is, can I be counted on to do the right thing no matter what? To that end, I have a wonderful essay here from J.B. Shirk. This is from AmericanThinker.com. Can you be counted on? He says, that's the question we quietly ask others. And he says, it's a question good people ask themselves. And he says, I, su- I suspect it's a question the Almighty will pose when we stand before him to be judged. It is a question that has nothing to do with intelligence or talent. It's a question that has nothing to do with one's ancestry or station in life. Yet it is the most important question when danger comes. Time is short and everything is on the line. When you say, I will hold this position, can others put their lives in your hands? When you give someone your word, do you treat it as a solemn duty? When you make God a promise, can he count on you? That's the test for integrity. And J.B. Shirk says that's a test that most people fail. And that's because being a person of integrity requires choosing tough, sometimes lonely roads. It requires the honesty and discipline to admit when you've done wrong. It requires moral resolve. And all these traits are in short supply today. There are a thousand different ways in life to seek honors, and there's no shortage of honors out there waiting to be won. But there's only one way to live a life with honor. That is by being a person of character, strength, and commitment. And doing so requires walking a thin line while almost everyone else veers far from principle's path. Seeking to behave virtuously in a world that mocks virtue is not easy. Living honorably is its own precious reward. Now, he says, why do I bring this up? Because he says 2024 is not only going to be a tumultuous year, but it's also going to be a year when the wheat is separated from the chaff. Each of us will be tested and each of us will be given the opportunity to prove our mettle. Now, from here, he goes into some current events. You'll be aware of some of these. Maybe some will be a surprise to you. But he says, with two regional wars already raging in Ukraine and the Middle East, China's Xi promising an invasion of Taiwan and a not-so-secret globalist plot to resettle millions of military-aged illegal aliens into the United States. The geopolitical cauldron is boiling over. And with the U.S. government's deficit spending, money printing, and green energy-induced inflation spiking the cost of necessities at home, while America's foreign adversaries rapidly decouple from the dollar, he says we're one match strike away from the whole financial tinderbox going up in smoke. With Democrats moving from mail-in ballot fraud to outright removing Trump from the ballots as well as imprisoning his voters, the justice system's self-immolation could incinerate what's left of due process and the rule of law. 2024's fortune cookie might as well read, only those who seek shelter and hide will see 2025. So he says how we respond to these chaotic events will define both our lives and the life of our country. When disaster strikes, can you keep a calm head? Will you do everything you can to safeguard your family, friends, and community? Will you dig deep down with steely nerve? 
Can you be counted on when it matters the most? J.B. Shirk says it's never been more important for people of integrity to lead. And in the trying times that lie ahead, there will be a public desperation for such leaders. Now he asks, how do I know this? Because with a few notable exceptions who are already being mercilessly persecuted today, America's entire leadership class lacks honor. After years of shamelessly defending the wealthy and the powerful from what it routinely denigrated as baseless conspiracy theories, the mainstream media have finally been forced to admit that two separate sex scandals, one involving Jeffrey Epstein's child sex trafficking operation and another involving a Beltway prostitution ring, probably both honeypot gold mines for foreign intelligence services, substantiate long-running claims that America's ruling class has a predilection for pedophilia. After failing to defend Jewish students from on-campus attacks following Hamas's October 7th slaughter of Israeli innocents and failing to truthfully defend her academic record as one befitting for the president of the country's oldest university, Harvard's Claudine Gay still refuses to take responsibility for her own actions and instead blames her ouster on racial animus. After spending the last three years discharging service members for refusing experimental vaccines, promoting men in skirts, stigmatizing conservative troops as extremists, and insisting that white supremacy and climate change are existential threats, the Pentagon has proven itself so full of horse manure that nobody wants to get near its stench. He says, while the whole world knows Joe Biden is suffering from dementia, the U.S. press corps never says a word. While roughly half the country believes his 2020 election victory depended on electoral fraud, and with evidence of that fraud piling up for three years, the press corps refuses to ask hard questions. When hundreds of thousands of unarmed patriotic Americans show up to exercise their First Amendment rights to protest for free and fair elections on January 6, 2021, however, that's when the press corps can't stop talking about an imaginary insurrection. Today's journalist class is filled with liars and frauds who have no time to speak truth to power because they're too busy manipulating the public and protecting the powerful. He says America's current leaders are power-hungry pedophiles, plagiarists, propagandists, and pro-Hamas partisans. They chase cushy academic positions, meaningless journalism awards, and the superficial trappings of professional prestige. They are not, however, people with honor. If they were, most would have resigned long ago or begun fighting the corruption from within the Marxist globalist beast. Instead, they use their resources to undermine those who have the audacity to exhibit character and moral strength. The people who cannot lead and cannot be trusted have chased all the real leaders away. And so he says what we have is a leadership vacuum. For too many years, the worst among us have risen to the top while the best take cover to avoid being seen. American exceptionalism has withered because America's most exceptional people have quietly disappeared. In going galt, they've left the keys to the kingdom with the ransackers and thieves. In fact, he says too many of the clergy, those who promised God, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, have proven through their own sex scandals and willingness to be silent in the face of government-directed evil that they cannot be counted on. Too many academics have proven that they prefer their sinecures to their intellectual obligation to think critically. Too many natural-born warriors have proven they would rather avoid rocking the boat than protect the country and constitution they swore to defend. 
I got to tap the brakes here because I'm coming up fast on the the commercial break, but I'm going to come back and finish up with the final thoughts from J.B. Shirk's article, Can You Be Counted On? Look, I'm not trying to point a finger at you and saying you are a bad person and you have made mistakes because I know that we all have. But I do agree with J.B. Shirk's analysis here that this is going to be a year of sifting. And I don't necessarily mean in you're going to have to go prove yourself to your, you know, political colleagues or your religious congregation. I think more importantly, you and I are going to be given an opportunity to prove ourselves to ourselves. And that is scary enough that not very many people want to do it. It's uncomfortable. But the very fact that you're listening to this show, I'll tell you what, I think that's a that's a definite strike in your favor because it shows that you're willing to listen to even hard truths that may not be popular. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've got a link to that great article by J.B. Shirk in today's show notes. These are the show notes for January 11th, 2024. And you can find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. Can you be counted on? That is the question of the year. In 2024, can you be counted on to do the right thing every time and to do it for the right reasons? He's laid out to the case why we have, you know, so many challenges and crises, you know, all coming to a head at the same time. And he says, if and when tragedy strikes, these Americans who have been far too quiet for far too long will have a second chance. And he says they should take it. Reclaiming their honor by admitting their past wrongs is the way for those who have been silent to rejoin the fight for America's survival. So if you felt like, well, you know, I have kind of sat quietly or I've tried to, you know, blend into the crowd to make sure that nobody would criticize me or I wouldn't be at risk. By the way, can I give you an example of what that risk looks like? Dr. Ryan Cole, I noticed the major news outlets in Idaho and Washington State were all reporting on this. Dr. Ryan Cole has been sanctioned by the Washington State Medical Board. They're apparently doing at least a partial suspension of his medical license. And the reason they're doing this is because they say he knowingly promoted COVID misinformation. You want to know the crazy thing? He was right. He challenged the narrative, and they did not like that, which is you know yet another indictment of that incredible just bedfellows relationship between government and medicine. And so, uh, like Jordan Peterson, who's, you know, been called out by, what is it, the psychology board there in, in Canada, we're going to threaten your license if you don't do what we say and come be re-educated. I think uh, part of Dr. Cole's punishment, too, is he has to take some kind of a class on basically doing and saying what you're told, and you need to write a thousand-word essay on this. They think he's some kind of schoolboy. I can't really say what I think he ought to do with, with their demand because it's uh, it's really kind of crude, but uh, I think he should send it back to them with a very firm no implied in the condition it, it arrives in. Nonetheless, back to J.B. Shirk's article. Victory, he says, after all, is never easy. It is defined as success in a struggle or endeavor against great odds. Right? It's never a slam dunk. 
if it is, it is a difficult ordeal that ends in triumph. In other words, there can be no victory unless we first acknowledge that the work before us is immense and the challenge is daunting. And there certainly can be no victory for American freedom unless those with honor join the fight. Integrity shines most during uncertain times. And as those lacking honor lead our country to its destruction, more and more Americans will turn to each other with a single question on their minds. Can you be counted on? Another way that I've heard this put is become an asset, not a liability. Now, some will hear that purely in, you know, martial terms, but I think this, this, this is something I've actually been saying for a while. So if I sound like I'm patting myself on the back, I'm just like, no. I feel validated, though, with what J.B. Shirk is pointing out. We are being handed an opportunity to become better versions of ourselves, to become greater versions of ourselves. I think I want to change how I, how I phrase that. Something greater than we are today. And it comes by passing through this crucible of difficulty, hardship, strain, blood, sweat, tears, and toil. The process, that, that, uh, the pressure and heat that creates a diamond is going to be, in a uh, not-so-literal sense, but in a figurative sense, applied to us. And I just have this hunch that as long as we're aware of this and if we're actually striving to live up to that, and, and especially if, if we're seeking help from, from above, I think we will all be amazed on the other side of this crisis at who we have become and what we were able to do with God's help. Now, that's just my opinion. I'm not trying to force anybody who's not a believer into being a believer but I do feel like I can speak from a position of mild authority, having stood at uh, the forefront of a couple of fairly historic events. They weren't about me, but I, I was a witness. I've seen it with my own eyes. And I can attest that uh, for those who are willing to humble themselves and call upon God, they will find that he is more than willing to fight their battles. But it takes humility to turn to him in that time of need, and to ask him to help us become what we need to become. And it almost guarantees you're not going to have an easy, comfortable, pain-free ride as part of the process. It's never been that way, ever. And the only consolation that I can offer is, but it's worth it. To have the clear conscience, to, to be able to look back and know that while other people ran and hid or worse, abandoned their principles and became part of the problem, you will be at peace. Your children and your children's children will speak your name with reverence for having set the example of one who would not bow to that siren song of popularity. Speaking of which, I'm going to shift gears here. There's a, there's a great article. This is from Restoring Truth. I don't know who the person is behind this substack, but they have some wonderful content. And there's, there's a great, uh, they, they brought to, to mind a great uh, reminder. I, I love The Simpsons. I grew up watching The Simpsons. They were very funny for about the first 10 seasons. And now, I don't know, they've, they've become woke. They've, they've kind of been infected with the same Hollywood mind virus as every other show. 
And whoever writes this from Restoring Truth says, I don't watch much television anymore, but there's one show that I once found funny enough to watch every so often. Its lead character, Homer, captured all the mediocrity of beer can living with his crude quips and vacant observations. However, however slovenly he was, he will long be remembered for his infamous bits of fatherly advice. Speaking to his son, Bart, he advised, being popular is the most important thing in the world. (laughs) Now, to witness our national plunge into absurdity and decay, it seems that Homer's words resonated with far too many. We become a nation of unserious people, consuming and consumed by a popular culture with no understanding of the most important thing in the world. We're armed with every technology and absorbed by endless apps, but have a spiritual radar the devil himself can evade. With our own days swamped in mindless distractions, we float in the toxic debris with our children left bored and begging among the ruins. Signs of our decline appeared decades ago. Fractured families, welfare dependency, addictions. But society's total bankruptcy still waited at a polite distance. We hadn't yet surrendered our faculties to our phones. The progressive cult hadn't reached its peak fervor. Nobody was talking about 99 genders or privilege walks. People said boys will be boys, not what is a woman? Those landline days, in retrospect, now look quaint. Just a handful of years later, our world moves exponentially faster and radical voices are amplified into our homes through the left's confederation of silver-tongued activists. They wear once friendly and familiar faces. They're athletes, entertainers, animators, and educators. And sometimes they're even priests. As the left's faithful, they worship at the pantheon of pride and proselytize our children whom they regard not as individual souls, but as the communal property of the state. Now that we're surveying our shadowy surroundings and watching wicked mobs dismantle our country, we wonder how we arrived at this place. How did we become so stupid, unhappy, wicked? Our nation's leaders bear much blame, but we did not arrive here against our will. Our habits of complacence and compromise paved the way. We drank the sweet poisons of psychology, entrusted our children to progressive education, and welcomed the Trojan horse of digital devices. We squeezed God out of our schedules, chased him from our schools, and even politely ushered him out of our churches. Although our list of failures is longer than this, they all flow from a single fault— We refused to remember the most important thing in the world. Now from here, the writer takes a a very decidedly religious turn, basically reciting the larger catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Man's chiefest and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. But the point is to enjoy and glorify the God of nature and scripture is indeed the most important thing in the world. I'm going to say this another way. In fact, I'm going to quote Ammon Bundy from April 12th of 2014 when a group of friends and I met with him outside his family's ranch house and we uh, gathered to talk about uh, what was going on. This was, this was the day of the stand down in Bunkerville. Now, the tension around that place was palpable. I've never felt anything like it. I can only imagine, you know, someone going to war probably feels that same sense of anticipation of, boy, you can feel the heaviness in the air. You can can tell something big, something significant is about to go down. And the first words that Ammon said as our little group of friends gathered together was he said, brethren, we need to calm our hearts and we need to remember who's in charge. So from that standpoint, I would say, yep, 
That pretty much is the most important thing in the world. All right, got to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I just want to give a quick reference again to the article I was sharing from Restoring Truth. If you go to restoringtruth.substack.com, you will find... uh, You'll find a lot of great stuff to read, but this particular article about how popular ruins, as in popularity, ruins, it's, it really goes into some interesting detail, especially how churches lost their standing as uh, pillars of support and stability in our communities. Why? Because they bought into that need to be popular. They started flying rainbow flags. They started hosting drag queen story hours and so forth. Not all of them, mind you, but basically Christian kindness, the virtue of Christian kindness has been appropriated for dark and popular agendas. So kindness was redefined to mean including and celebrating everything from the far left. And finally, the church was offering something that everyone could embrace. Churches, by the way, that don't, uh, you know, bow to same-sex marriage or other, you know, deviancy being, you know, celebrated and, and codified are decried as, you know, they're bigoted, they're, they're hopeless, they're behind the times, mental dinosaurs. But they understand the difference, or at least their leadership understands the difference between popularity and principle, which it turns out that's kind of one of those common traits of human nature that we all have to learn to distinguish between. Okay, a couple different articles that I that I want to share with you. Um, man, I've got, these are doozies, by the way. Uh, first and foremost, Jeffrey Tucker's article on whether there are quarantine camps in the U.S. right now. I know, I've heard the rumors and I've heard the speculation for years and years. They're building camps. They're building camps. Okay, wait until you actually see the video that's linked in this article. Medical students learning how to uh, work with people in this quarantined camp. That's what it is. It's a quarantine camp. Safely learning how to help the public in times of, of trouble. It's, it's not played up, but it's also very clear. They're talking about a secured camp where people will be involuntarily sent and kept in case of some public health emergency. It's very chilling. And it's very reminiscent of what was going on in Australia and New Zealand just a couple of years ago. Ah, but that would never happen here. Come on, Brian, COVID is over. Is it really? Because last time I checked, the people who were in power during those awful years are still very much in power, at least here in America. Are you sure it couldn't happen here? Because after reading Jeffrey Tucker's article, It looks like it is happening. It's just happening quietly and coming in on cat's feet. Oh, and wearing a pretty bow to make it more acceptable. Also, I want to recommend for your consideration Doug Casey's take on debanking, financial censorship, and a social credit system. This is a must-read article. Why? Well, in my opinion, it's because if we are going to be brought into complete bondage, or if you prefer the word control, if the ruling class is going to assume absolute control, it's most likely going to happen through our money and banking systems. 
Think about what happened with those Canadian truckers or the people who even so much as sent them 20 bucks to support them. Bank accounts frozen, donations confiscated, people locked out of their money. What if the whole system was set up in such a way that your money is only accessible so long as you're a good boy or girl, or they, them, and you don't make waves? Doug Casey is, uh, I think, a pretty sound thinker. I don't think he's one who's taking flights of fancy and just, you know, going off into tinfoil hat territory. His take on debanking, financial censorship, and a social credit system definitely left me thinking, okay, what can I do to make sure that uh, what I have in terms of my savings and my, my, I'm putting this in air quotes, wealth, I measure wealth a little differently than some. And the, the thought that keeps coming to mind is you've, you've got to have some diversity in how you do it. If everything that you own or your, your money is all tied up in a bank account somewhere, meaning it exists primarily electronically, you're at risk. And I don't tell you that to go cause a run on the bank. I'm just telling you, you are at risk. What you cannot control can be taken from you much more easily than you might think. So maybe it's time to make some plans or at least have contingencies in place that if someone says, look, you have to do this or else, you have some means of saying, no, thank you. And you can walk away from whatever leverage they think they have over you. By the way, I don't know how easy that's going to be. I was just having this conversation with a friend the other day. I suspect that we're going to see this come about in such a way. It'll be voluntary at first, but it will eventually shift to mandatory. And that means things like cash transactions or even barter may be made so illegal and enforced so ruthlessly as to try to force everybody into a system where they can be more closely controlled. By the way, that would have sounded very uh, paranoid and conspiratorial four or five years ago. After what we went through with the whole COVID lockdowns and all the official malfeasance that was on evidence for those with eyes to see. How many people feel comfortable in saying, no, no, they would never do that. Or if they did, or if they tried it, the press would tell us, they'd warn us about it. Yeah, sure they would. All right, one final note. We're going to end on a, on a little happier note. Sometimes it's easier to forget that each of us has more influence than we allow ourselves to believe. Sometimes it's, you know, self-deprecating, false modesty. Oh, please, I'm just a, I put my pants on one leg at a time just like anybody else. But there's a time, and it's coming fast, where we are going to need to wield our influence as efficiently as we possibly can. And Kurt Malberg, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a great list of four things you can do to change the culture in 2024. Now, he, he says, look, maybe I'm on a new year high. Okay, so maybe it's just optimism here. But he says, as I consider the West's cultural renewal, I sense an optimism in the air I haven't felt for years. And part of it comes from the awareness we've seen of the dangers and futility of, say, transgender surgery. And along the way, many people woke up to the hypocrisy of the climate alarmists, right? Flying their carbon-spewing jets you know, off to another uh, environmental summit. And building on the success of uh, Roe v. Wade's demise, lots of, pizza, lots of states rather have passed heartbeat bills providing robust protections for many of the nation's unborn. Pollsters have even picked up on a decline in support for same-sex relationships. 
In fact, a few days after the ball dropped in Times Square, a symbolic historic event took place. DEI champion Claudine Gay resigned as president of Harvard, one of the world's most prestigious universities. Under her leadership, free speech on campus reached new lows, while racial essentialism and anti-Semitism thrived. People are starting to wake up. And he says it's important we begin 2024 with our feet firmly planted on the ground, even if our ambitions are still high up in the clouds. So with this in mind, he says, there are four things we can do to locally change culture in 2024. And it's important. Victories for freedom, sanity, and cultural renewal are ahead, but he says they must be first won at the local level. First thing he suggests is clean up your room. This is, of course, a nod to Canadian philosopher Jordan Peterson, who's been well known for this, but basically set your house in order before you criticize the world. Next, he says, self-censor a little bit less. There's no need to go out and deliberately offend anybody, but we shouldn't feel compelled to use pronouns dishonestly, be frank about whom we plan to vote for or why, or leave the DEI dogma at our workplaces unchallenged. There's no guarantee we'll always have free speech, so he says now more than ever, we need to use it or lose it. I like that. Number three, he says be proactive in your child's schooling. Universal school choice has made significant gains over the last year with a wave of red states passing legislation. How involved are you in your child's education? Don't let preset curriculum, secular narratives, or woke agendas determine who your child will become. Mom and dad need to be involved in their schooling a little more this year, ensuring that it's your values they ultimately embrace and live out. And finally, he suggests get involved in your local church. Now, he says, not every church in your area is worth your time and investment, but he says, you need that community. Attend weekly, not just when it suits you. Go and get involved. Serve when you're able. Even with simple tasks like stacking chairs or holding the door open, invite others from your church over for dinner so you can get to know them. Look, there's a time I would have scoffed at this as well. Well, you know, that just seems like, you know, a bunch of people getting together and just hanging out, you know. Um, I draw strength from the people that I get to rub shoulders with throughout the week, you know, who are part of my church congregation. I see in their examples powerful evidence that I can, I can do better and I want to do better, that I can be more like them by virtue of how selfless they are in serving other people and helping lift the people around them. Again, there's a link to this article in the show notes. Check it out at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.